0: If he thought to himself, look, the stuff on TV is bad enough that I should sell my stocks and I'm going to sell my stocks and just ignore the devastating, terrible stuff I got in my congressional briefings, but just based on the TV stuff, I would feel good selling my stocks. And he called his broker and sold his stocks. That's clearly illegal. It has to be illegal. Like, that's not, it doesn't work that way. You can't like compartmentalize your knowledge
1: that way. Hello, this is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm your host, Matthew Reed. The coronavirus pandemic has raised many interesting finance and securities law questions. Is it illegal for US senators to trade on a pandemic? What is the Federal Reserve doing to address the current economic crisis? Are stock buybacks a sin? To answer these questions and more, I'm joined by Bloomberg columnist, Matt Levine. Most famously, Matt writes the column Money Stuff, a quirky and intelligent take on finance and the broader economy. Before Bloomberg, Matt was an editor of Dealbreaker an investment banker at Goldman Sachs, a mergers and acquisitions lawyer at Wachtell Lipton, and before that, a clerk for the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Without further ado, thank you, Matt, for joining us. Thanks for having me. So back in March, a few U.S. senators got themselves into trouble after it emerged that they had sold quite a bit of stock before the market plunged. Richard Burr of North Carolina, Kelly Loeffler of Georgia, and Dianne Feinstein of California ended up having quite a bit of explaining to do after they, or in Feinstein's case, her spouse, traded stock just before the market collapsed. So, for starters, what is insider trading, and generally, how do insider trading laws work?
0: So, never legal advice. Uh, Insider trading is, uh, let's see, it's trading law in possession of material non-public information that you came by in a bad way. That's the sort of simple way of putting it. The, the, that's a vague statement. The statutory regime right now is kind of vague. People sometimes introduce bills trying to clarify it. And the clarifying bills work in essentially what the way I said. It's trading on material non-public information, that is information that matters to the stock price of a company and that isn't public, that um, you got in a bad way, that you came by illicitly. The two main ways to come by something illicitly, ordinarily, are if you, like, work at a company or work for a company. If you're the CEO, if you're one of their investment bankers or their lawyers, you get information that you're supposed to use on behalf of the company and its shareholders. You're not supposed to use it for your own personal profit. And if you trade without making it public for your own profit, and that's bad and you get in trouble. The other like, weirder way is if you're tipped that information, if like an insider tells you the information, then it's probably illegal for you to trade. There are weird rules around that. Like the two ways it could be illegal for you to trade are one is if you like betray the confidence of the insider. So if you're his therapist and the CEO tells you he's going to do a merger and asks how it like relates to his feelings about his parents and you trade on that, you have betrayed a confidence and you're clearly guilty of insider trading. But it's weird because like the insider trading imports the like therapy relationship into the law. The other way that you're guilty is if the insider tips you. If the insider wants you to trade, if you're like the insider's brother-in-law and he calls you up and he's like, hey, I got a hot stock that my company is merging and you trade on that, then that's clearly illegal. Then the insider gets in trouble and you get in trouble too. Um, And there there's like a lot of weird legal discussion around what kind of relationships will get the insider in trouble. So like if the insider just tells a random person on the street, and that person trades, it's not clear either of them has violated the law. Although, like, the, the law here gets very fuzzy. But if instead of telling a stranger on the street, he tells his brother-in-law, who he's friends with, and he owes a favor to, then they probably both get in trouble. But there's some murk there. Anyway, so that's the sort of the general rule.
1: So how do these laws work for members of Congress, and how does that compare to the traditional corporate insider trading paradigm?
0: The weird thing is that, like, this is usually for information about companies. It's usually pretty straightforward to know what that is. So like if you work at a company and you know that the company is going to do a merger, then that's inside information. But they realized not that long ago that the US government gets a lot of information that's material to a lot of companies and isn't public, but that like doesn't come from the companies, right? Like if the government is going to pass a law increasing health insurer reimbursement rates, and that's good for health insurers. And if you trade on that, if you buy health insurer stock based on that, then it seems bad. And so there's like a sort of like patchwork of trying to forbid that. So like this, if you trade on government information, you're probably violating existing insider trading law, probably violating Rule Ten B five. You could probably get in trouble anyway, but it's not totally clear, particularly for senators and congresspeople. So they passed the thing called the Stock Act a few years ago, which is like Stop Trading on Congressional Knowledge Act. That basically said that if you like work in or for Congress, you can't trade on material, not public information that you get from Congress. So it's easy to think of examples of insider trading on congressional knowledge, right? Like it's easy to think like, well, you know, if we're going to pass a bill that says health insurance reimbursement rates are going to go up, then buying health insurers on that is bad. But like you get a lot of information in Congress that isn't like exactly about companies. And then if you like read through that information to make macroeconomic calls, then it's like a little weird to say that you're insider trading. And so like the thing that these, that these senators mostly are accused of is that they learned about COVID-19, about the coronavirus, and they uh, they dumped stocks. And in some cases bought like, like Zoom or whatever, they bought like uh, coronavirus resistant stocks. It's hard to like sort of pinpoint the material, non-public information. At the time these people were selling there's a lot of information publicly available about the coronavirus. Like, a lot of people were dying in China. A lot of, like, supply chains were being shut down. Like, it it seemed likely to have, or it seemed possible to have a bad economic effect. And so, meanwhile, these people were getting, like, secret congressional briefings. And we don't, I don't know what was in those briefings, right? They were secret. Um, it hasn't been disclosed. One possibility is, like, they got all these senators in a room, and they were, and, like, the CIA or whoever was, like, Guys, this coronavirus is going to come to America. It's going to have devastating effect. We're not going to be prepared for it. We're going to have to shut down the entire economy. There'll be a huge, great depression. Everything is terrible, right? But like, there's no evidence that that's what they were told. And even if that's what they were told, like, there's like no one knew, right? Like, it's not like the CIA knew this. Um, so it's a strange little case, right? Like. Like, they knew something that we didn't know. But it's not clear how relevant or, like, directionally important it was. And it's not sure, it's clear that it was, like, inside information. It's not like they were, like, passing a law about it, right? It's like they were being told guesses from the intelligence community. I think. I don't know. No one knows. So it's a strange case. Like, most of these people, most of these senators, actually have a very good excuse, which is, you know, this is like Diane Feinstein and, and uh, Kelly Loeffler. These people have a really good excuse, which is they're rich people, And they're they're like senators. And, you know, Diane Feinstein's case, she's been a senator for like 100 years. Kelly Loeffler hasn't been, but her husband is the CEO of a a stock exchange. And in both cases, like, they do the simple thing that rich people like that do, which is that someone else manages their stocks. So, like, those people did not call up their broker and say, sell all my stocks because of this intelligence briefing I got. So, they have, like, a really good excuse. They were not trading on the basis of inside information. They probably weren't trading at all. Burr, Burr is a weird case. He, like, clearly called this broker and was like, dump all my stock. Like, he's, like, Kelly Loeffler, like, sold, like, 1% of her stocks or something, right? Like, Burr sold, like, 90%. Of, I'm exaggerating. I don't know. He sold, like, a lot of his stocks. And he clearly made the call to do it. His defense is that he was trading based on public information. He was watching TV. He was watching CNBC and hearing reports about the coronavirus in China. And he thought, this is bad. I should sell my stocks. Which I kind of believe. But, you know, you have this problem where, like, if He was getting secret information from his congressional job that was devastating. It was much worse than what was public. And he also was watching TV, and he's like, the stuff on TV is bad. If he thought to himself, look, the stuff on TV is bad enough that I should sell my stocks, and I'm going to sell my stocks and just ignore the devastating, terrible stuff I got in my congressional briefings, but just based on the TV stuff. I would feel good selling my stocks. And he called his broker and sold his stocks. That's clearly illegal. It has to be illegal. Like, that's not, it doesn't work that way. You can't like compartmentalize your knowledge that way. So I don't think that's a good excuse. But the better excuse would be, look, TV told me that stuff was bad. And my intelligence briefings did not materially add to that knowledge. And so I traded based on public information. And I had no non-public information that would have been material to the average investor. And that may be true. But he hasn't said that, and one reason he can't say that, like one reason he hasn't said it, maybe is that he's not well advised. But another reason he hasn't said it, or maybe it's not true, by the way. But another reason he can't say it is like it's very hard as a Congressperson to say we don't get inside information to say yeah the intelligence briefings are worthless and I didn't know anything from the CIA that I couldn't have learned from watching TV. Right, like that's a bad thing to say as a Congressperson about your job it's a good defense to the insider trading charges, which by the way hasn't been charged, right? It's just like rumors and press reports. But like it's a good defense to allegations of insider trading. But it's not a good defense. It's not a good like description of the workings of the US government. So I think that, um, you know, one could have, Im- like I think the SEC is like supposedly looking at this. One could imagine him telling the SEC, look, these secret briefings there's nothing in them. I didn't know anything that you don't know from watching TV, um, and it's possible that he'll persuade them of that, and that that'll be true. But he can't say it publicly because it would be sort of embarrassing for everyone. So that's that's kind of my working theory of Richard though. I don't know if it's
1: true. That's a nice segue to the next question, which is, what's the point of insider trading laws? I can imagine someone saying, "Look, you know, every time someone trades in the market, it's going to affect the price of the stock, and so if you were to permit insider trading, then." if we assume that markets are efficient, prices are going to reflect the additional knowledge on which these insiders are trading. So if I am Richard Burr, and I know that the economy is going to collapse, and I sell $2 million of stock, then that sell signal is going to have some effect on the market price. And that's going to provide more information to the market, which is reading that price signal as conveying some kind of useful information. Do you think there's something to that? So
0: I, I wouldn't characterize it quite that way, right. I mean, it's not like the price immediately reflects his knowledge when he trades, right? I mean the price immediately fri- reflects the price reflects the knowledge that is like sort of aggregated by the market. Like he doesn't short billions of dollars worth of stock, right? Like he either limits to his ability to impact the price, right? Like I'm not a huge proponent of insider trading enforcement. I don't think people should really go to prison for insider trading like all that often. I think that like a lot of the debate about insider trading, is a little sterile because a lot of people who think that there should be laws against insider trading believe that the point of insider trading law is to prevent disparities of information so that like if I'm buying stock, I know that I'm not buying it from someone who knows something that I don't, right? And it's like a market efficiency sort of like we want the market to be fair thing. And that strikes me as as and and like and, and, and like if if that's your belief about insider trading law, then the counter argument of well, insider trading makes prices more efficient is like a good counter argument. So you can have that argument. But it's not like, that's not what insider trading law is. So it's a sort of silly, like, sideshow debate, right? I mean, like, insider trading law is not about trading that you, when you have information that no one else has. It's about trading when you have information that you've acquired illicitly, right? It's not um, trading on material, non public information by itself. Isn't the illegal thing, at least in the U.S. Some some countries it's closer to being the illegal thing, and so you know I always write that insider trading law is not about fairness; it's about theft, um, and that's like this notion of the illicit obtaining of information. And so one way to think about it is that you know the problem with a CEO insider trading is not that he is that his counterparties in the trade like have worse information and are selling at the wrong price. He's like, who cares? the The problem with it is that he is he is using corporate information for his own purposes. He's like sort of stealing compensation from the company without like the approval of the shareholders and the directors. And he is, you know, like it's not just that like his counterparties are being betrayed. It's, it's not that his counterparties are losing money. It's that his counterparties are his shareholders, and he has a fiduciary duty to them. Or if like you know, if an M and A lawyer trades on knowledge of, of their m and I mean, like, you know, you're a lawyer, you have professional obligations to your client to keep their, their confidences. And if you're like using those confidences for your own profit, then that seems bad. And the, so like the weird thing about insider trading law is that it's really like an enforcement of those relationships. It's an enforcement of like the CEOs who do duty or the lawyer's ethical obligations or like the therapist's ethical obligations. Or I often write about golf partners and I jokingly but somewhat seriously point out that insider trading law enforces the sanctity of golfing relationships. Because if like your golf partner tells you about a merger that he's doing in confidence and then you trade on it, you're violating the law. Not because you traded on information that other people didn't have, but because you violated your golf partner's confidence. And there are literally cases that are, that, that sort of make that point. So saying that insider trading law, like, doesn't, like, best promote market efficiency, like, maybe true, but it's not, like, doesn't respond to the actual thing that insider trading law is doing, which is, like, enforcing the, uh, the, like, those relationships and, like, preventing betrayals of those relationships. Now, that's a very strange thing for securities law to do like very strange. It's not that strange in like the CEO context. It's a little strange because securities law is not about fiduciary, you know, it's not mainly about the fiduciary responsibility of corporate insiders which is, you know, mostly a matter of state corporate law. But it's not that strange to be like, you know, if you betray your shareholders, then we should put, then we should, you know, then the securities law should be concerned with that. But it's another thing to say, if you betray your ethical obligations as an M&A lawyer or if you betray your like relationship as a spouse or as a therapist or as a golf partner. It's weird for the securities law to be concerned with that. But I do think that's what it's concerned with.
1: So I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about monetary policy. Could you walk us through what the Federal Reserve has done to address this crisis and just give our listeners a sense of why it's important and what are the kinds of things that the Fed is doing?
0: Um, I mean... Not really a monetary policy expert, but like, I mean, like, the broad, the, in broad strokes, like, what the Fed has done to address this crisis is promise to buy everything. Um, so, you know, like, the usual way that the Fed addresses financial crisis is, well, the usual way that the Fed sort of loosens monetary policy and tries to improve credit conditions is by, like, buying, you know, treasury bonds and whatnot, um, buying, like, the securities of the US government. In this crisis where sort of every market froze up, the Fed just sort of announced over the course of about a week in March that it would buy everything. So it announced programs, and I forget most of them, but it announced programs to buy commercial paper, announced programs to buy municipal bonds, announced programs to buy corporate bonds in the secondary market and also exchange-traded funds of corporate bonds, announced programs to directly lend to uh, corporate bond issuers. So instead of buying bonds in the secondary market, which lend money to companies, it announced a Main Street lending program, which is like lending money to middle market companies. It separately, the Treasury announced the payroll protection plan program, which is um, effectively just giving money to small businesses, um, which includes some public companies, really. And I'm forgetting like nine other things that the Fed is doing. Uh, it, you know, it, it enormously expanded like repo operations because basically like repo, the repo market, like just the the, the sort of like overnight cash funding market for like banks and hedge funds where like you just get cash secured by treasury bonds like that market seized up because everyone was desperate for exclusively cash like just cash not even treasury bills and so you couldn't get cash for your treasury bills and so the functioning of the market kind of seized up and the fed is like well we'll just give you cash for all of your treasury bills and So basically everything that, that, like every kind of financial asset was just, the Fed was like, we will buy it or lend against it. You know, they did that for like a week. Just every day they announced five new programs. And that did have the effect of like enormously shoring up the confidence of financial markets. Because, you know, like you still might want to sell your stocks because you might be like, well, you know, like all these businesses don't have revenue, so that's bad for them, right? You might even want to sell your bonds because, you know, <laughs> if they don't have revenue, they may not be able to pay their, their bonds. But like just the mechanical functioning of like highly levered, like very sensitive markets where like if you can't roll over your overnight repo funding, then you have to like do a fire sale of your treasuries and then everyone else has to sell everything and like everything goes haywire. Like that just got fixed because the Fed was like, we'll, we'll just step in and sort of do the, 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 backstop all that functioning and so a lot of financial markets kind of returned more or less to normal to the point that like you know the investment grade bond market is open and like you can just issue bonds and like the fed in march announced that it was going to be buying corporate bonds and announced today that it's going to start like today i mean announced yesterday it was going to start today in the intervening like month and a half the corporate bond market has kind of gotten back to normal and the fed may not have to do much buying because just the announcement that the fed would be buying was enough to calm people and make investors say, well, if the Fed is backstopping us, I'm happy to buy bonds and sort of sort of like normal prices.
1: Right. Against that monetary policy background, I wanted to ask you about a hot topic, stock buybacks. So in mid-March, Tim Wu wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times entitled Don't Feel Sorry for the Airlines," which I think really typifies the prevailing view about stock buybacks among a lot of the American commentariat. And his thesis was, look, American Airlines could have saved for hard times. They could have put some of their very, very significant profits over the last 10 years away in some kind of rainy day fund. But instead, they went out and they bought back stock from their stockholders. And now they're calling back to the federal government and asking for a bailout. And in Wu's view, this is completely unacceptable. And this means that they should be last if they get a bailout at all. What do you make of this argument? And What's the point of stock buybacks? Is there a reason to do them? So here's,
0: here's how I think about share buybacks. I don't think companies do share buybacks for a reason. I don't think that's the way to think of it. I mean, the way to think of it is like, if you like open a corporate finance textbook to the first page, the basic story of corporate finance is like, there's a person who wants to do a project. He raises money from investors. And the investors give him money and he promises in some form to Pay them back some money when the project succeeds, and then the project succeeds, and he gives them back some money. Or it fails, and he doesn't. Right? And there's like you know, there's like a, a time zero. The investors give the money to the entrepreneur, and at time one, entrepreneurship happens, and at time two, the you know, investors get a return. Right? And this is like a simple model for like the financing of projects, and like the basis of all corporate finance, and that's your model. There has to be that time too, right? There has to be that like at some point the entrepreneur gives the money back to the investors. At some point the thing is done and the investors get their money back. You don't need a reason for that. Like that's just the whole thing. The whole system is just like you're giving money back to people because they gave you money. Now, in the modern corporation which has like a perpetual life, like that gets very attenuated, right? And it's not like people like start Apple Computer and they build one computer and then they sell it and they take get profits, and they give the money back to the shareholders, right, and like and, and disappear, right? It's not like that. Like these companies do have, you know, sort of semi-perpetual existence, and they do a lot of projects. And for the most part, when they get money from doing stuff, they reinvest it in doing more stuff. But you have to sort of like keep in mind that like basic financial insight of like the investors want something for their investment, and like you should give it to them. And so, anyway, so like airlines, right? Like if an airline has a profitable ten years. And, like keeps making money the things it can do are basically give that money back to investors which is called the share buyback and people like debate that they go like, oh, you're not really giving it back to investors but like dividends and share buybacks in the corporate world are basically identical right like if you buy back stock from an investor you're 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 you know it's like repaying a loan right you're like You had the money from investors, now you're giving the money back to the investors. So buyback is just giving money back to investors. That's one thing you can do with money. The other thing you can do is invest in your business. And I don't know what an airline would do to invest in its business. You can imagine them like inventing new planes, but they're not really in that business. The main thing that airlines do to invest in their business is they buy more planes so they can run more routes, right? And that would have been terrible. That would have been much, much worse in the circumstances of the pandemic. Because one, it would have driven down profits so they would have had less money. And two, Like they'd have more airplanes. They'd have to like idle more planes. They'd have more pilots to lay off, right? Like by expanding capacity, they'd be in worse shape now than they actually were. Because what they actually did functionally was they shrank, right? I mean, they didn't exactly shrink, right? But like instead of like taking the money and using it to grow, they took the money and used it not to grow. And so they're relatively small compared to like the 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 counterfactual where they could have just invested the money and growing and growing and growing. And so they're a relatively small entity to shut down. I mean, you know, look at how they are in the pandemic. They're still flying, right? I mean, but they've, they've dramatically reduced capacity because no one's, almost no one, not, not literally no one, almost no one is taking planes. If they had twice as many planes, they'd have twice as many costs to idle those planes. They still wouldn't be running more routes, right? So, like, they made the right decision, which is that, you know, their their, their choice at every point was, like, grow or return money to shareholders, right? It's like, to say, do we want to invest in more projects or do you want to declare this project complete and give the money back to shareholders? And to the extent they chose the latter and they chose giving money back, they made like what turned out to be the socially correct choice, which is not expanding into like the cliff face of, like of, of shutting down the business for years, right? Now, the third thing they could have done besides like either expanding or giving the money back is just like keep the money in the bank, right? And like, yes, every company could have just cut more money in the bank, but it's not like a particularly interesting, like, advice, like, every company should have, like, two years of revenue in the bank in case a pandemic hits, right? Because that's, like, hasn't happened in the previous decades, so it's, like, a weird thing to think about, ex-ante. And it's also, like, sort of macroeconomically unsound because, you know, everyone's everyone's savings as someone else is borrowing, right? I mean, if you give the money back to shareholders, they invest it in something else or they keep it for themselves. Like there's some, someone ends up with that money, right? And it may be someone who's better situated to end up with it than American
1: Airlines. Right. Turning the page now to some of the specific legal challenges that corporations might face during this pandemic. I wanted to ask about a recurrent theme in your column, Money Stuff. You like to say that, quote, everything is securities fraud, unquote. Could you explain what that means generally and also how that might play out during the coronavirus pandemic?
0: I don't know, man. I mean, everything is securities fraud. Like the way I put it is that everything everything bad that a company that a public company does, anything bad that happens to a public company, is also securities fraud. Because if you know, the classic recent example is, and there are cases or there are lawsuits right? is uh, is sexual harassment, right? If your CEO is a sexual harasser then, you know, it may or may not be possible for his victims to sue him or to get any sort of satisfactory compensation for that. But if it comes out that he's a harasser and and like he has to be fired and the stock price drops and it's a big, you know, fiasco, then some enterprising shareholders plaintiff's lawyer is going to sue and say, Well, you didn't disclose that he was doing this harassment. Like you put out these 10 K's every year and they had risk factors that were like if we get in trouble we'll get in trouble but you didn't say that you had a sexual harasser in the in the ceo's you know office and by not disclosing that you've defrauded people who bought your stock because they bought it under false pretenses they thought that you weren't sexually harassing people but you were and like this is like sometimes a sort of ludicrous theory and sometimes like kind of a good theory and kind of works depending on the specific facts and particularly the specific facts of the disclosure, right? Like, If your disclosure made affirmative statements that seem wrong, then that's better than if you just forgot to mention something. So like your sexual harasser CEO, like the victims of him are not really the shareholders, right? But but the shareholders can get money, right? Because like it's easier to sort of just multiply the stock price drop by the number of shares and get a large number and then take 10% of that as a security settlement than it is for the victims of the harassment to like go to court and face down, you know, the defense lawyers and and and, and sort of get large monetary settlements for themselves. Or like, I love the you know, lawsuits against ExxonMobil for securities fraud, for not disclosing the risk of climate change, because like clearly the victims of climate change are not ExxonMobil shareholders, but like it's easier to pretend that they are and sue over securities fraud than it is to like, Sue XM for causing climate change. Anyway, with COVID, I mean the main thing, and this is this touches on the moral hazards stuff we talked about. The main thing is like it's not that everyone was equally vulnerable to this, but like everyone was kind of equally vulnerable to this. So on the one hand, some professors did a study and they found that like 21% of companies, public companies in the U.S., had some sort of pandemic risk factor in their in their 10Ks. And so on the one hand, you can be like, well, 79% didn't. And they all, like, basically, you know, 99% of American companies have, like, lost revenue due to COVID. So, like, the, you know, 79% who didn't disclose risk factor, they could all be sued for securities fraud. And someone, someone is clearly tasked an associate with going through all the filings and sort of trying to figure out who can be sued. But I also think that, like, you're going to get laughed out of court for most of these things. Like, if you're, like, like you know, some hotel company didn't disclose that it would lose a lot of money in a pandemic. Like that's not a that's not a real thing. Like I joke about everything being securities fraud, and I think it's a useful lens to view a lot of like actual disputes. But something that applies to every company in the in the world. Like I think you're going to have a hard time bringing those cases. But that said, there are companies that are differentially exposed and like did differentially bad things, and. You can probably sue that, right? So, like, one of the cruise lines, like in like March, was calling people up and like calling like potential customers up and saying, "Hey, it's a great time to cruise. Warm weather kills the virus. Our ships are the safest place to be." And then eventually, when like cruising was shut down, they had to like you know cancel all those trips and give those people their money back. And some enterprising plaintiffs learned, like securities plaintiffs lawyer, did sue them, being like it was securities fraud to not tell us that you were doing this dumb thing and like on the one hand that's absurd on the other hand no one's going to be that sympathetic to the cruise line right like like yeah you, you were doing this really dumb thing and like sure maybe it's securities fraud right so like some number of people who did bad stuff like who specifically did bad stuff not just like they were hit by the coronavirus but like they like were especially hard hit or they did bad stuff in the, in the run like you know Tesla's doing all this nonsense with its factory in, in, in Fremont where like they're reopening the factory in violation of health orders. Someone's going to sue them, right? Like, why not? Why wouldn't you throw in a securities case there? Why not? So I think there's going to be some of it, but I don't think there's going to be like an enormous wave of it. I think there's going to be sort of the regular amount where like companies that do dumb stuff are going to get securities fraud suits in the same way that they would have a year ago. But the fact that every company has had a bad thing happen to it doesn't mean every company
1: is going to securities suit. So how about mergers? How has the deal market been affected by this how successful do you think firms will be at unwinding deals that signed before coronavirus, but have yet to close? It's not necessarily a bad time to buy.
0: And in fact, private equity funds are getting, uh, trying to deploy their dry powder and whatever. W- what it is, is just like, there was a sort of general level of prices for companies in February. And there's a general level of prices for companies now. And the general level of prices now is much lower. And so if you like signed and closed a merger in february you like bought a company and you overpaid but like that's life sometimes companies, sometimes prices go down right if you sign a merger now you might be totally thrilled to do that it might be great like you might be like wow i'm getting a great bargain on a good company the problem is if you signed a merger in february or like or like you know november and you haven't closed it yet you're like wait i agreed to pay the old price for this company and now everything is at the new price and i am like Taking a bath on this deal, like when I close this deal, I'm going to be underwater by you know billions of dollars, and so you really want to not do that. So like the effect on mergers, it's not that mergers aren't happening now. Like people aren't negotiating and signing deals. Although by the way, like the fact that no one can meet with each other does put a cramp on merger activity. But banks are doing deals. Like it's happened. Like the merger market is is continuing to to uh, churn. But what did happen is that mergers that were agreed prior to you know, kind of March, um, but that hadn't closed as of March, a lot of buyers are having cold feet. And, you know, the way a merger works is that when you sign a merger, the buyer really wants to do the merger and the seller really wants to do the merger. But you know that this the buyer might change its mind, but the seller is sort of unlikely to change its mind. The seller might want to take a higher offer. So there's like all sorts of like higher offer provisions in a merger agreement, but the seller isn't going to want to walk away generally because once you sign a merger you sort of like stop running your company and people sort of expect you to sell and so it's and it's a huge pr disaster if you if the merger falls apart and you have to go out alone after saying you weren't going to go out alone Whereas for the buyer it's like yeah you know whatever it's 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 like it's like one potential acquisition and so in the negotiation of a merger the seller like really wants it to be airtight they really want the thing to close no matter what and so the buyer like doesn't care that much. And the buyer wants to get the deal done at the time, right? Everyone's everyone's friends at the time. And so you end up with an agreement that sort of says this deal is going to close no matter what. There's like 100 pages of exceptions to that. But the sort of general thrust of it is that it's hard to get out of a merger. And in particular, there's a thing called the material adverse effect clause that says that the buyer can get out of the merger if there's been a material adverse effect on the seller's business, which sounds like the buyer can get out of a merger if there's been a material adverse effect on the seller's business, but in fact did not mean that and is so full of exceptions that famously it had never happened. Now, it happened a few years ago. Delaware finally found an MAE, a material adverse effect. Um, and there may have been one or two since then, but like as of like 2015, there had never been a material adverse effect. Like No one had ever gone to court saying, we want to get out of this merger because of a material adverse effect on the seller's business. And the court had said, you're right, there was a material adverse effect. Um, one reason for that is that like, effects that seem material and adverse were not material and adverse enough. But the main reason is that these material adverse effect clauses consist mostly of exceptions. And so you know, it says the buyer can get out if, the sell, if there's been a material adverse effect, unless you know, that effect is, for instance, a drop in the stock price or a change in, in the stock market generally or a recession or any change that has affected the seller's industry as a whole, or blah, 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 a lot of exceptions. One exception in some deals is a pandemic, particularly if you signed a deal in February, you wrote into the deal an exception for pandemics. It's not common in like sort of pre February twenty twenty deals, but in February twenty twenty deals, everyone's like, if there's a pandemic and that has a material adverse effect on the seller's business, that doesn't count. So you can't really get out of deals because of material adverse effects. And I don't think anyone has tried to bust a deal based on a material adverse effect clause during the pandemic, because I think all of them either have ex- specific exceptions for pandemics or they have other like generic exceptions like, you know, changes in the economy or like changes in or, or like acts of God, all of which sort of would seem to cover the pandemic. So no one is getting out of deals because of the of the MAE. But they are finding other ways. The the way that people are working on that seems to have some prospect of working for buyers is what's called the conduct of business covenant. So every merger has, a, every merger agreement says, between the signing and the closing of the deal, while the seller is an independent company, but you know, has a contract to sell itself to the buyer, the seller is going to operate its business in the ordinary course. You know, so something like in the ordinary course consistent with past practice. And, you know, what that means is, like, if you sign an agreement in January to sell your company in June, you can't, like, just take the next six months off, right? You can't just, like, stop coming to work and, like, not take care of your inventory and not, like, you know, keep up the factories and everything. You you can't, like, stop doing the business that the buyer paid you for, is paying you for. And so you have to run your business in the ordinary course. And... Rather than specify everything you have to do, although they do you typically have a long list of things you have to do, they say you have to run your business in the ordinary course, and everyone kind of knows that if you make dramatic changes in how you run the business, then maybe the seller can get out of the deal. Every company in America has made dramatic changes in how it runs its business because you know there's a pandemic, and so some number of buyers have said, "We want out of the deal because you're not running your business in the ordinary course consistent with best practice, and that is a more challenging, that's a more challenging argument for the sellers, and there's one being litigated in Delaware now. The Vice Chancellor said something like, the question is, do you have to run it in the ordinary course for ordinary times, or do you have to run it in the ordinary course for, like, flood times? But there is also, you know, L Brands, the, like, sort of retail conglomerate was selling the Victoria's Secret brand to a private equity firm, and the private equity firm wanted to get out of the deal, there was a lawsuit and the, the private equity basically took its stand on the ordinary course covenant and, and L Brands said, that's ridiculous, we're running it in the ordinary course for a pandemic. And I found that rather persuasive. But they settled in a way where basically the private equity fund won. They didn't, you know, L Brands didn't get any money, um, which makes me think that there's some, that this argument has some teeth. Although, there's a lot of weird things about that particular deal and it's not clear that argument is going to like win in general.
1: Right, right. Got it. To change the subject completely, I wanted to ask about you. So you have a very colorful resume. You were a classics major at Harvard. Then you went to Yale Law School, served on the Law Journal, then completed a Federal Circuit clerkship, joined Wachtell Lipton's M&A practice. Then you went on to Goldman Sachs for several years. And then you went into financial journalism. So I'm really curious about How you made that career change, what kind of drove that change in in your mind, and how do you like to think about it?
0: Uh, Well, you know, it was one step at a time. In college, I was like, I liked the humanities. I was interested in literature and pretentious enough to be a classics major. And you can't really do anything with a classics degree except be a classicist or go to law school. And so I thought I'd be a classicist, and I spent a year teaching high school Latin after college thinking I might have some more time to think about whether I wanted to go to grad school. And I sort of thought, well, you know, Classics grad school is like 10 years, and then you can't get a job. But law school is only three years, and you can get a job. And so I figured I'd be a law professor, which was like being a Classics professor, but easier in my mind. And also, I figured if I didn't want to be or if I couldn't be a Classics prof- or law professor, I could always be a lawyer, which is not an available option in the Classics. Um, so I went to law school, and I sort of decided I didn't want to, like the model of law professorship was not that interesting to me, like by which I mean, like the sort of public law, uh, like constitutional law stuff that is like particularly prized and prestigious as like, you know, when you're like a one L law school didn't like appeal to me that much. I was thinking of con law. There's like no law there. It's just like politics, but I found contracts really interesting. I'd always been sort of interested vaguely in like finance and business. Like a very vague way. Um, and so I was like, I'll do MA law. And so I spent, you know, my 2L summer at Wachtel and it was great. It was really fun. And I was like, I like MA law. So I became an MA lawyer. I became an MA lawyer in like this, the summer and fall of two thousand five. That's basically a time when if you're an MA lawyer, there are social pressures and financial pressures to become an investment banker. It was like why be an M&A lawyer? You could be an investment banker and make more money and get promoted faster and be like more at the center of like the deal universe or whatever. I'm not sure any of that was really true, but it's like a thing that people believed and that I kind of believed. And so at some point, someone who I had worked with, who was a Goldman, called me and was like, hey, do you want a job here? And I said, is it better than this job? And he said, it's a little better than that job. And we talked about what the hours were like. And I was like, you're right. That sounds a little better than these hours. So I basically went to Goldman for the hours, um, which was not like a great plan, but it was fine. Like I sort of like I sort of wanted to be in finance. I didn't really know what that meant. And so I went to this very strange desk at Goldman, like structuring equity derivatives for corporate clients. It was a very strange desk. It was very interesting. And I learned a lot. And it was like a desk that sat at like the intersection of like trading and capital markets and investment banking where like we were an investment banking desk, but we were effectively the sales force to corporate clients for for like the like single stock vault trading desk so like we talked to traders a lot and we learned how they thought about risk and and we learned how to price derivatives and but we also like sold convertible bonds so we were like a capital markets underwriting desk so like I like learned the business of underwriting and also it was incredibly like, the stuff we did was very like tax and accounting and legally sensitive. So I learned a lot of like law stuff and accounting stuff and tax stuff and had to be sort of conversant in that. Like everyone on my desk was was, like a really good tax and securities lawyer, even though most of them did not have law degrees, but like you just like learned enough to be dangerous at the legal aspects of the stuff we did. And also like... There was a lot of plumbing, and so I spent a lot of time with like the internal committees that improved that approved new products and with like the people in charge of stock borrow and like all these like bits of uh, of like the sort of Goldman you know they called the federation like the the sort of administrative and and like technical groups. So I just learned a lot about how like about, like product management and how stuff worked at banks. and uh, so it was like useless training for anything else in finance but it was great training for writing about finance. Anyway, so I did that for four years and um, I always vaguely dreamed of being a writer in the vaguest possible way. Then uh, Dealbreaker, the uh, financial blog, was hiring and I knew people who sort of worked at that company. So I sent them some writing samples and uh, they gave me a job offer and having no real experience or basis to believe I'd be any good at it, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. So I went and did that. And uh it was really fun. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's awesome. I kept doing that. That's great. So if you had to give one piece of career advice to law students and young lawyers, what would it be?
0: Gosh, I don't know. I, I, I keep trying. I, I keep getting asked this and trying to answer it. and I'm, I'm slowly converging on a good answer. I don't have it yet. So here's what I'd say. In the situation that you're in, if you're like a student at an elite law school, like you probably have an enormous bias towards like optionality and prestige and that has served you well in life and will probably continue to serve you well in life for some period of time but you have to know when to turn it off or at least you have to turn it off like it's hard to know but like you have to know that at some point you'll reach an end point right so like the thing that you do the thing that you do when you're a child is like you go to a good university and the thing that you do when you graduate from a good university and you don't know what to do with your life is you go to a good law school the thing you do when you graduate from a good law school is you clerk right and then like after you clerk you go to a big law firm right and like at every stage you're like well this will keep my options open for the next stage and you're not wrong sometimes you're wrong right some some like you're foreclosing some things by doing these things but you're keeping a lot of options open but like at some point you just end up like a miserable big law partner or something like you end up like sad. Not that everybody, like there, you know, one thing you could do, do is be a happy big law partner, but it has to be like an affirmative choice. Like one thing that you're doing is sort of not making affirmative choices for a long time because you're keeping options open and keeping options open is great. Because it gives you options, but like at some point you have to explore the thing that you want to do and foreclose options. And like, for me, like when I look at my career, I did like the most conventionally prestigious possible things for like a long time. Like I went to Harvard, I went to Yale Law School, I clerked, I went to a law firm, I went to Goldman Sachs. And all of those things were like the most conventionally prestigious, obvious things. And then I quit my job at Goldman Sachs for like a 90% pay cut to go write for a financial gossip blog. And that was like by far, by far my best career decision in my life, like by orders of magnitude. If I had graduated from college and been like, I want to be a blogger, that would have been a terrible mistake for me. Some people do it and it's great, but like, for me it would have been a terrible mistake. But at some point, I knew enough about myself, at least intuitively, and I had sort of banked enough conventional prestige that I was like, I'm going to take this risk to do something that is appealing to me rather than the thing that is conventionally prestigious and keeps options open. I feel like most people are going to do that like roughly once in their career. It's good to time it right, right? It's 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 good to not do it too early, right? It's good to keep some options open, right? It's good to go to law school, right? And it's good not to do it too late, right? You don't want to be like fifty-five and have had a thirty year career that you hate and be like, ah, what I really wanted to do is dance. It's too late now, right? Like I did it like I did it when I was like in my early thirties. I was like I was like not yet married, no kids, I think I had a mortgage, but it was like it was like an okay time. But you want to sort of like hit that sweet spot where you're like kind of like jumping off the prestigious track and like doing the thing that actually moves you. And you also have to figure out what that thing is, right? It's hard when you're doing the conventionally prestigious things to figure that out, right? It's hard to know what you want to do when you're just doing the thing that everyone else is doing. So this is not exactly actionable advice, but it's the most important thing to keep in mind. Fair enough. (laughs)
1: That's unfortunately all the time we have. Matt, thank you so much for joining Briefly. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been Briefly, a podcast of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UshaiLRev and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thanks, and we'll see you soon for the next episode of Briefly Season 4.